Hello, this is Do Go On. I'm Matt Stewart. And I'm Taran Jayamana. And uh, we're in Sydney. And uh, we're about to be in Brisbane. And we're doing live shows. They're called Dry Dryer. And also, who knew with Matt Stewart in both those cities? And you can get details at mattstewartcomedy.com. Anything else you want to tell the good listeners that do go on, Saran? Well, the whole point of this was you thought that it might be more engaging if you had a different voice. But you've said most of the information. So, hey, come see us in Sydney and Brisbane. Yeah, that was engaging. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Whether it's your first ever website or your business is expanding, Squarespace makes it easy to create a beautiful website and engage with your audience. Upload video content, organize your video library, and showcase your content on beautiful video pages. You can even sell access to your video library by adding a paywall to your content. Cha-ching! <laughs> You can help with written content on your website with Squarespace AI, which I used to write this next sentence, so check this out. Generate instant, personalised results that know and show your brand identity. Explain what your site is about, choose your tone, and enter what you need to get short or long-form text. Squarespace AI... Squarespace AI makes it easier to go live, stand out, and succeed online. Oh, Dave, if only it could also not just write it, but read it too. (laughs) And edit it. (laughs) Hey, sell exclusive content on your site by adding a paywall to sell memberships or courses. Or sell files your customers can download like PDFs, music or ebooks. Man, it's starting to sound like I'm obsessed with money. (laughs) (laughs) And you are. So head to squarespace.com slash do go on for a free trial and to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. Hello and welcome to another episode of Do, Do Go, Go On. My name is Dave, Dave Waterkey and I'm here with, who am I here with, Jess? I don't know. <laughs> oh no, you can't come this far. <laughs> I'm here with Matt Stewart and the greatest woman in the universe as voted by the entire population of the world, Whoa. Jess's mum. Yeah, did a little uh, switcheroo there. Just kidding. It's me, Jess Perkins. Oh, I'm a bit disappointed. I thought I was going to meet the or co-host the show with the greatest woman alive. Instead yep, of Instead, I'm looking at her daughter. You have. Oh wait, I missed that bit. Oh my god! This, I thought this is a mess. <laughs> the greatest woman of all time, Kathy Freeman, came to mind, but maybe that was because I saw her on a on a on a barbecue shapes ad before. Ooh, they build her as the greatest woman of all time. Well, they she was living on Legend Street. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> We're not here act. to talk about shapes. Or, or are to we? debate the greatest woman of all time. <laughs> we are here to host a podcast. Hello, and we're here to host the last podcast for 2018. Well, our podcast, not, <laughs> not ever. Last one ever, and then some smartass tries to release a podcast at like 11.59. It's a it's a 50-second podcast. Oh, Fuck you. What a dog ass. Smartass. 
We are the last pod. All pods are on holidays now. Hmm. So it is a pod holiday. But, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a bloody fun year. Probably my favourite for the podcast so far. Each has been better than the last in right. some ways and in other ways much, much worse. Mm. I don't know what ways there would be, but it's been so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> We're fine. We're absolutely okay. <laughs> it's good to be. I love these because we've a lot of live episodes lately, so it's, it's always nice to be back in the studios mm. with you guys. Mm. It is. Just People. us. Yes, just us. Just us. None of those prying eyes always oh. going, give us another fact. Yeah. Tell us more information about the topic you're talking oh, for about. for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> they just won't stop. I like it when it's just us three and we can sit here with no pants on, yeah. pick our oh. noses whenever we like and nobody sees it except you two, but who's going to say anything? Who cares? Well, I didn't notice that. Can you just keep your fingers in your pants, mate? <laughs> if you had them on, that is, which you don't. So I don't know what you're going to have to do. Put them in your pits. <laughs> Fingers in your pits. Come on. Oh, okay. You wouldn't cross over? Oh, you do the cross. Yeah, I do I the do cross the, I do the chicken dance. <laughs> yeah, I love <laughs> that. No, 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 no. No, I do a little self-hug. Oh, yeah. Everything's going to be all right, buddy. I'll do, I'll do like a, some sort of weird one. He does a pretzel. You're, you're striking a, some sort of a pose. Yeah, you do a Vogue. Very yeah, good. I'm Voguing. <laughs> but what I was trying to say was 2018, fantastic year. 2019, possibly an even better year for the pod. And what better way to start it than three months in perform at the Melbourne <laughs> International Comedy Festival? God, his segues are so smooth. Yeah, smooth. It's so smooth. I don't know where they're going until they're already happening. Yeah, that's right. We are performing at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival oh, once again. I put- like the word performing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Appearing. <laughs> We'll be there. Sitting, sitting and talking. Sitting. That's a performance yeah, art. Yeah, it is. Uh, tickets went on sale last week and they're available at dogoonpod.com. And if you use the code CHRISTMAS before the uh, end of the year, before January 1st, you can get a discount on all tickets, including already discounted season passes. Are we Ooh. talking classic spelling or Dave's spelling of Krishmi? No, I went through this last week with, when I was doing the intro. I just went with Christmas. Yep. Just normal Christmas because Krishmish would have been too confusing. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. How do you spell Krishmish? You know, how long's a piece of string? Yeah. It's really whatever's in your heart. How long's yeah. a Krishmish? Yeah. How long's a Krishmish? How many E's in a Krishmish? <laughs> yeah. Me, I'd say four or five if I'm going hard, but mm. just depends. Now, the way the show works, right? If you, is that plug Yeah, if I just wanted to get that out of the way, you know. The way the show works, Jess, if, I, if, I, if I'm right, uh, tell me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't want to know about it. Okay. Uh, the way the show works is between the three of us, we rotate, and each week we do a report on a topic that we research to varying degrees, but normally at least quite a lot. And then we bring a report in and we tell it to the other two uh, who don't know what the topic's going to be. Uh, to get on a topic, we ask a question. This week, Dave is doing the topic and the report. And the question. And the question. Wow. He's and done it all. To get us on topic, Dave, what is your question this My week? My question to get us on topic is... Who became world famous after oh, piloting oh. the spirit of St. Louis? Um, okay. Famous pilots. Pilots. Famous pilot. Yes, the, definitely. brothers? We've done them. The Marx brothers. Done Have the, we done them already? The Wright brothers. Oh, yeah, the Wright brothers Get it well. right, mate. Thank you. Thank <laughs> oh, you so much. Don't applaud yourself. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's stop, like you were already it. like 
clapping as you are halfway Who are you bowing to? Yeah, stop. Uh, it's hard to get it across on the podcast, but when I said right there, I was actually spelling it W-R-I-G-H-T. Yeah. Like the brothers. That's oh. why that is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm a genius. <laughs> no, it's not the right brother. Is so, it John Travolta? No, who is also a famous pilot. Is it? it he, this name would probably come between the Wright brothers and John Travolta on the list. Number two on the list. Of pilots. Yeah. Ooh, okay. Is it Amelia Earhart? Okay, that may also be number two. They share a second spot, Amelia Earhart and one other person. This is Male? a man. It is a man. Is it Jacques Picard or whatever uh, Patrick Stewart's name is in that show? No. <laughs> is he part, are you a pilot of plane? Space? Space plane? Yeah, space plane. <laughs> is it Scotty Beam Me Up? Oh, that is full name. Yeah. That's why they say that when they say that. Yeah. Scotty Beam Me Up. Is this one of the, you know how you've got friends who you like you refer to with their full name? I always assumed it was just he wanted a bean. Bean me up, Scotty. <laughs> Chuck me us a bean. Yep. Scotty's sitting there with a bag of beans. Bag of beans. <laughs> <laughs> just eating him. He brought his own lunch. Bean me up. Bean me up. Beat me up. And Scotty's like, I wish you would bring your own lunch. You keep eating half of mine. And honestly, the reason I'm bringing it is I'm trying to eat healthy, but also just trying to save a bit of cash. Mm. But you're eating half my lunch. Yeah, and then I end up going through the drive-thru on my way home because I'm hungry because yeah. half my lunch was eaten by you. <laughs> I've never been reimbursed. The drive-thru on the way home from Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Dave, they're people too. On the way back to their houses. <laughs> um, anyway, I don't think either of us know yeah. what it is. Yeah, I'm talking about Charles... Xavier. Lindbergh. Oh, the ah. Lindbergh baby. That is also part of this massive Right. Ah. I don't even know what that means. I've just heard people say it before, maybe in Seinfeld. Oh, right. So, wow, that can't believe that comedy show referenced that, this absolutely tragic event. Oh, no. <laughs> but there are two things that Charles Lindbergh is very famous for. No, it was The Simpsons. I think Grandpa at one point says, I was the Lindbergh baby. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, yeah. Is that true? That's right. Yeah. There you go. Early uh, Simpsons reference. Uh, very famous for flying the spirit of St. Louis and then also very famous for what has been dubbed as the crime of the century. Oh. Which century? I guess the 20th. 20th century, that's right. Ooh, oh. So bigger crime than... Uh, 9-11. 9-11. No, that did not fit in, I'm afraid. <laughs> that's Biggest crime one. of the yeah. 21st century. I know. <laughs> I don't know okay. what to do. You bring it up every episode. <laughs> oh, not on this point. That's a primates thing. Do I bring it up on this? <laughs> so well, actually, well, this story does. This isn't a pre-9-11 world, I guess, a lot of this story. So that's interesting. And, uh, yeah, it was a more naive t- time back then. Is that what you want? <laughs> now, this topic has been suggested by a whole bunch of people. But the reason I'm doing it is because our main man, Mr. Justin McCain... Way back when we used to have the golden hat, I missed his suggestion at the time. So this is the final ever golden hat Fell suggestion. into a crack in the golden hat. Sorry, Justin. Uh, so, I think he's talking to you. <laughs> so this one is definitely for you, Justin McCain. Thank you so much for your continued support and also your support way back when we had the golden hat going. And also a bunch of other people. I'll quickly shout out to Abby Sostre, Jacob Gray, Nolan Hewitt, Billy from Calgary. Didn't say... Uh, any last name? Jeff Rossman, Emma from Austin, Yusuf from Glasgow, and Ari Katz from Israel. Very popular topic. Awesome. A lot of great names. It, it did sound like I was making up a whole lot of names just reading them out. Beautiful names, Dave. But thanks to everyone. That, well made up. I don't believe you have it in you to make up names that good. I don't think I do either. Dave would be like, 
Dave from Glasgow. Uh, uh, Glasgow Dave. from Dave. David. David from D- Dave. Yeah. Land. Yeah. And uh, others. Yeah. Now, it's on to the topic, which is, of course, Charles Lindbergh. And we're going to start with his early life. A great work- place to start, Dave. And work our way through this, um, how do I say, extraordinary life. It's very. Some people would start sort of in the middle mm. and then they'd get to something and be like, oh, yeah, I, I have to let you know that this thing happened to him when he was really young and that's why his mum calls him Steve. Anyway, so <laughs> now, but see, when you start mm, at the beginning. Be. You work out that Charles and Steve are the same person. It flows. And it could be fun if you, you start somewhere in the middle and then you have you put a sort of like a title card on the lower third of the screen saying 17 years earlier. Yeah, that's fun too, actually, if you can do that, if you can put a title card on the lower third of the screen <laughs> on I could this put podcast. in a sting that says... 17 years <laughs> earlier. Oh, I don't like that. Do a different voice. 17 years earlier. Oh, I like that one better. That was just his voice. What's that? That, that, was, sli- <laughs> that was slightly higher. Slightly. It was just Dave like, sounding pleasant. That was about 8% higher than usual. Dave, did you say this is your longest ever report before? I didn't say it on mic, but it, off mic and on mic now it is. So let's get into is it. That, that's Matt subtly telling me to shut the fuck up, I think. I went overboard with the research. A little bit overboard. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't think it was that subtle. <laughs> So that's it. After 20 years, so long and good luck. I don't recall saying good luck. <laughs> Kirk Van Houten fired. <laughs> I'm the Kurt of this show. <laughs> it is so brutal. <laughs> All right. I'll let right, Dave go. speak then. Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. What a name was born February 4th, 1902 in Detroit, Michigan. The son of Evangeline Lodge Land. That, that sounds mad. Evangeline Lodge Land. Lodge Land. Lodge and Land are two separate names. That Ava- sounds, Evan- does sound like a theme park. Lodge Land. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a Freemason-themed theme park. <laughs> the son of Evangeline Lodge Land a chemistry teacher, and her husband, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Sr., who was a lawyer and later congressman for Minnesota from 1907 to 1917. That's 10 years. That's right, and being a congressman. Well done. Well well done. See? How does she do it? I've started on my New Year's resolution early, and it's to get better at maths. Put your hands on the table. Is there a calculator? No? Abacus. Oh, she's holding her phone. (laughs) With the calculator app open. And it says equals 10. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Charles attended many schools throughout his life and eventually graduated in 1918 from Little Falls High School. Same school where his mum taught chemistry. Did you? Oh, because of the little? Yeah. (laughs) That's cute. Little Falls. Uh, Throughout his childhood and teenage years, he showed a keen interest in all things mechanical. He worked on his family's car and motorbike. Learned a lot from (laughs) Motorbike? (laughs) I right. learn a lot from that. Matt, this is Dave's longest report. <laughs> if you could just pipe down. It's like your... Yeah, okay. <laughs> and at the age of 18 years, well, at the age of 18, he entered the University of Wisconsin to study engineering. To talk more about motorbikes. <laughs> 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 However, by this time, Lindbergh had become fascinated by aviation. And after two years, he left school to become a barnstormer, which is a pilot that performs daredevil stunts at fairs. Woo! Ooh, that's fun. Fun. Well, that was his plan. Oh. But 
He'd had a few flying lessons but didn't have enough money to own his own plane and wasn't allowed to fly solo in someone else's plane. So he joined the circus in Jacksonville, Florida and saved up money performing as a wing walker. Oh. You know, when, uh, back in the day when they'd have the, yeah. the wings and people would walk along them. Very, very dangerous. It's like a, obviously a stunt. So he... He'd do that. To save up to buy his own plane, he risked his life by being a wing walker. That's... Something about that's real cool. If someone was doing that today, like the Red Bull pilots or something, mm. I'd be like, whatever. You know, I bet you could do that. But back then in the olden days with weird old planes. We didn't know that they could do that. <laughs> I was yeah. thinking more on like a domestic jet star flight. Wow. I'd be like, ooh, I'm not sure you're supposed to be there. <laughs> There's something. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, that joke's funny. <laughs> That's a a reference to an old episode of Twilight Zone. Yes, and a reference to us talking about that reference and not getting it. (laughs) On Matt's other podcast, Primates, when we were talking about Ace Ventura 2, this time it's personal. (laughs) Or whatever it was called. Back of the habit, please. (laughs) Yeah, please. (laughs) So he was a wing walker. He saved up enough money to buy a Curtis JN4, okay, a Jenny. Plane, that's what people call them, left over from the First World Jenny. War. <laughs> yeah, that's what people call them. Love it. Jenny. Uh, so, yeah, he ha- now he's got his own plane. He had less than 20 hours instruction when he completed his first solo flight. Oh. He practiced takeoffs and landings for a week, then filled up with 40 gallons of gas, and he set course for Montgomery, Alabama, 140 miles away, to start his barnstorming career where he was billed as Daredevil Lindbergh. So he's had 20 hours. And then he's like, great, I'm good to go. I'm just going to have a practice of my takeoff and landing, arguably the most important bit, and now I'm going to fly off and start charging money to do tricks that so I don't know how to do, but I'll figure it out. You can barely fly a plane in a straight line, and he's like, yeah, I'll be a daredevil. I can do a flip. To be honest. <laughs> Daredevils don't have to fly planes in a straight line. <laughs> exactly. And also... He's risking his life every time he gets behind the plane, mm-hmm. so it's really dangerous. He, People he, appreciate him that. flying badly. He's like, "Yeah, I'm doing it. Tricks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look at him flipping over. Yeah, I'm doing this on purpose. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Look at it. Whatever yeah. I'm doing, that's on purpose. Yep, it's called a whoop de whoop. It's got a whoop de whoop. He's quick on his feet, Dave. Maybe take a little page out of Charlie's book. Someone's yelling, "Do a whoop de whoop." You want me to start doing a whoop de whoop? Yeah, being a daredevil. Yes. Because I'll do it. Oh, can you imagine Dave with a mohawk? <laughs> He's so close. As, and an as eyebrow all, ring. As all daredevils have <laughs> the combo. And an eyebrow ring. He's a daredevil from 1998. <laughs> I think I would look quite good with an eyebrow ring. All right, let's try it. Oh, no. Back in your band days, oh, I could I could picture you with it. Yeah, with your dark, your dyed black hair and your emo fringe. Definitely have that. I'm sad you outgrew that. Really? Yeah, it's time for a resurgence, I feel. Matt, dreadlocks are back, thank you. (laughs) And Jess, what horrible haircut did you have? (laughs) Nothing, I've always had excellent hair. I should say, I'd never had dreadlocks. I had one dreadlock. (laughs) You had dreadlock. It was gross, and I wish you would stop talking about it. (laughs) Never. I've moved on. It's about time you did too. I will never move on. Dave, please move on. (laughs) Have I told you when I I remember taking it out? I picked it out by hand. It took... So long. I was home by myself. It was about 18 or 19 and I was watching uh, an OC marathon. <laughs> there could be the, the, the change from like real grubby, yeah. gross guy to um, 
member of society could not have been more complete <laughs> by watching a marathon of the OC. Or from boy to man. Yeah. That day. It's beautiful. So not many people can pinpoint it. Mm. So it's quite special that you can. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with and us. And did you say to yourself, welcome to the OC, bitch? Yes, I did. <laughs> so glad you did. Dave so now, now he's a barnstormer. Then in 1924, Lindbergh enlisted in the United States Army so he could be trained as an Army Air Services Reserve Pilot. Not at war at that stage. He graduated the following year and as the best pilot in his class, then he got a job as a male pilot flying between St. Louis and Chicago. For a second, I did get confused between male for a second there. Sorry. Basically, he's a mailman yeah. in the air. Yeah. Postman. Posty. He's a postie. Now, you think this would be a relatively easy job compared to his military training? He's got to deliver posts. But on two separate occasions, he had to bail out of his plane due to bad weather and plane failure whilst it was flying in the what air. What about the mail? Fortunately, he was unharmed in both incidents, and on both occasions, once he landed, he tracked down the mail he was delivering and ensured that it would be sent on with minimal delay. He gets the job done. Love that. This guy gets it. He gets it. He's a doer. Yeah. I love that. As a doer myself, yeah, I love recognising another doer. Now, aviation had been really growing since the Wright brothers, who I did a whole report on you can listen to, took their first flight in 1903. And then the First World War made sure the technology improved at a rapid rate. With war now over, in 1919, Raymond Ortegue, a French-American hotelier and aviation enthusiast and also ph- philanthropist, announced a prize of $25,000 a huge amount of money equal to close to 350000 US today, for anyone that could fly nonstop between New York City and Paris or vice versa, a nonstop transatlantic flight. So those kind of, like when somebody like that goes, I'll offer this reward for this, are they basically just trying to push uh, like the technology to advance fast, like motivate people to? Yeah, or do they get the technology? Is it like we'll buy the technology if you do it or is it just going we, we want to bring science gigs. on? No, yeah. he was just so rich that he just was a fan. So I've got here, having made an enormous fortune with a chain of hotels in New York City, Ortega was fascinated by stories he'd heard from French pilots in World <laughs> War One, and developed a real passion for aviation and dreamt of how commercial air travel could benefit the world. Yeah, so, so he was just a fan of the technology. I don't think he's going to get rich from it, but he's like twenty five grand to me is nothing, and maybe it'll kickstart. Yeah, that's what I mean. So that's... it's it's not that it's not just shits and gigs. It's probably kind of thinking if people are working towards this kind of goal, it'll it will push the the technology forward. I guess. Yeah, because now the technology is starting to stall it. Because yeah. in World War One, everyone's trying to get the best plane, so. As always, what happens with big wars is technology advances in great leaps. Yeah. And now that's over, sort of this is the Great Depression times. So there's lull. less yep. money flying around for these kind of things. So he's like, oh, just keep the money going. That's cool. Love that. Orturg. What a, and if you are if you are in America, please do stay at one of the fabulous <laughs> Orturg hotels. Oh. Hotel Orturg. Yeah. Is the sponsor of this episode. <laughs> we will be invoicing them. <laughs> They don't know they're a sponsor, but you know. Do you know you don't know the hotel chain? Or did he did he a generation down change his name to Hilton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To a much more glamorous sounding name than Orteg. Orteg's beautiful. I love it. No matter what you say. Uh his most famous hotel was the Hotel Lafayette in ah, New York City. I've heard of that, I reckon. Sadly it was demolished in the nineteen fifties. I definitely wouldn't have heard of that. <laughs> I've heard the word Lafayette. 
it's a person or something. That's right. When we saw Hamilton a few weeks, weeks ah, ago in one London. one of the characters in that. Yes. French Revolution. The French one, the one you liked. I can yeah. remember back to just a couple. Of, did I say I liked them? No, you were confused because the same actor plays Thomas Jefferson. Oh, right. And you thought that they were the same person. Yeah. Well, why is that change accent? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, a I guess by now he's been in America for a while, but you'd think yeah. he'd still have yeah, his huh? French accent. Uh, I don't know. Now, I should say, it should be noted that others had technically completed non-stop transatlantic flights, with the first being completed in 1919 by British aviators John Alcock and Arthur Brown. In 72 hours non-stop, they travelled from Newfoundland in Canada to Galway in Ireland and received $10,000 from the Daily Mail for their exploits. Their electrically, electrically heated flying suits failed, but coffee spiked with whiskey kept them warm and somewhat alert. <laughs> you know, when you're drinking whiskey and you fly on a plane... Somewhat alert. That's where you want to be. Uh, there's photos of them having, quote, landed, and the cockpit is down and the tail is up. They've definitely crash landed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know why I laughed at that. <laughs> well, they survived. Oh, they're, it's they're funny. Okay. It's funny. So how many, did you say 72 hours? Yep. Fuck that. That's a long time in a plane. I can't, I don't want to be awake for that long. Long time in a plane like that would be a nice-ish plane to sit in. Oh, yeah. Uh, and one that you're not flying. Yeah. But you're in control and the cold time is just... Yeah, it would be yeah. so oh, loud. That would be awful. I mean, that's too long in first class. But at least know? they're getting drunk and a yeah. bit stimulated by the bean. Bean me up, Scotty, is what they said <laughs> to each other. Uh, but no one had yet travelled over the whole Atlantic, so Raymond Ortega, inspired by Olcock and Brown, travelling from Canada to Ireland, set up this huge prize to encourage people to try it. And try they did. And fail, they also did. <laughs> <laughs> it was a serious challenge, a total of uh, nearly 6,000 kilometres or 3,600 miles, and was actually double the distance from Canada to Ireland. Whoa. So a real step up and very dangerous. That's twice the amount. Wow. Is it? If my calculations are correct, I, I believe they are. Well, check Jess's calculator. <laughs> yeah, it says times two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's very dangerous for pilots to attempt. The prize was on, was on offer for five years and in that time had zero competitors as the technology just wasn't ready for it. So Ortega extended it another five years and then people began to attempt the challenge. The first attempt was French flying ace René Fonck. Fonck? Fonk. Fonk. F-O-N-C-K. Fonk. René Fonk. I love that I'm so gonna much. I'm going to name him the freak. Freak the Fonk. Don't freak the Fonk. Does that not mean anything to you guys? This you is Dave's I'm... longest report. Okay. We got the Fonk. <laughs> um, he was actually the Allies' best fighter pilot from the First World War and second overall only to the Red Baron, who you've probably heard of. Yes. Yeah, couldn't have kids. Real sad story. <laughs> oh dear! Really, uh, Ren- really wanted him. Yeah, would have made a great dad. So yeah, it'd be fine if you were the Red Baron, but you it was never part of your yeah. plan. Red Baron and and you know just great, just you know making making rain with that. What do you call it when you got no kids? Child, something, something like snick or something. What? That's some term like childless, something ack. Ah. Oh. Uh, something, something. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Sad sack. Sad sack. You know who did have lots of kids? Rene Fonk. Rene Fonk. He got the Fonk on. The freak. 
Uh, however, the Freak was less successful with the Ortega Prize, despite aircraft designer Igor Sikorsky reportedly spending $100,000 on the plane. <clears throat> Love the name Igor. Remember, they're trying to win twenty five grand, and he spent a hundred grand on the plane just because he wants to win so bad. And after all that, the plane crashed on takeoff, and two of Rene Fong's crew members were killed. Oh no! But Rene himself survived. But that was the end of his dream. In nineteen twenty seven, three groups in the United States and one in Europe were known to be preparing attempts on the prize, but none were successful, and many ended in disaster. In total, six men in three separate crashes, and another three were injured in a fourth crash. Wow! So people are having bad luck. Dink is what they call them. Double income, no kids. Dink. Dink. Wow. Classic Red Baron. But he was a sink, single income. <laughs> God bless him. <laughs> what is going on? All right, I'm going <laughs> to. I don't know what's going on. Uh, meanwhile, our young, plucky 25 year old Lindbergh wanted to have his own crack at the Ortega Prize. It had only been four years since his first solo flight, but he thought his mechanical expertise could really get him across the line. Despite being very unknown in comparison to many of the pilots attempting the crossing, Lindbergh was able to get financial backing from a group of St. Louis businessmen who helped him score a $15,000 loan, and he also put in his own $2,000 life savings. It's amazing how much money people are putting in to win that amount of money. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, financially sometimes doesn't work out. But it's Big the gamble. Fame. 17 grand to win 25 is not good odds. Unless it's a sure thing. Though, if you do get it... That's, you know, that's eight grand. That's happy days. And worldwide fame. Yes. Uh, Lindbergh chose Ryan Aeronautical Company of San Diego to manufacture a special plane, which he helped design. They, uh, they had to build the plane much faster than usual because people were trying uh, to complete the challenge all the time and they were worried that they'd be pipped at the post. So the plane was built in just 60 days. Wow. Officially known as the Ryan NYP, standing for New York to Paris, the single-engine monoplane was designed by Donald A. Hall of Ryan Airlines, but it was nicknamed the Spirit of St. Louis in honour of Lindbergh's financial supporters from St. Louis, and this is what the plane is known to history as. That's not the Ryan Air, is it? No. What a, what a downhill... What a step down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Spirit had extra fuel tanks added to it in order to be able to carry enough fuel for the super long-haul flight. At Lindbergh's request, the large main and forward fuel tanks were placed in the forward section of the fuselage in front of the pilot. This How could he see? This meant that the plane had no windscreen and when flying, Lindbergh couldn't see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> Which obviously sounds crazy. But he was used to mail blocking his vision anyway. And when flying the mail plane and this plane, he would use side windows and turn the plane if he wanted to see what was up ahead. So he just turned to the left, look out the window. Oh, that's cool. All right, back on course. He also had a periscope, periscope built into the plane. so he I could... hope he alternates between checking the left and right window. Otherwise, he just always, he's just always inching slightly left. <laughs> he also had a periscope built into the plane so he could see what was in front of him, but it's not clear if he actually used this at all. It was mostly for when his plane was underwater. <laughs> just in case. And he needed to spy on his cartoon enemies. <laughs> You get to see a big eye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why could you always see an eye in the periscope? Check out that big eye. <laughs> Periscopes are dumb. Submarines are weird. Anyway. 
You said it. <laughs> yeah, I don't care. I'll take them down. Yeah. I'll take down Big Submarine. Yeah. They're, oh, big... they're a weird thing. Why? They're weird. Big Submar. They're so weird. Oh, you'll just go under the water. <laughs> Let's build a, a big metal fish. <laughs> so silly. Isn't that silly? It's just, I mean, when you think about it, which this is the first time I've really thought about what a submarine is, and it's an underwater boat. Matt, is that right? <laughs> it's more so, like an underwater bus. Yeah, something, something like that. They're so silly. <laughs> it don't make any sense. I mean, if you want to travel underwater, they make perfect sense. Why would you need to travel underwater? When is that quicker? Was it? I'm guessing. <laughs> was it war? To yeah, try yeah. to be. Un- yeah, of course. But now, why do we have? <laughs> I mean, oh, it's now, still war. now all the wars are over. <laughs> I think is it to it's to find necklaces for Titanic oh, movies. Yeah. Yeah, James Cameron is a big fan. Sorry. Yep, I feel like an idiot. You're right. They have a huge purpose. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> if anybody out there has connections with someone with a submarine. Oh, a live pod on a submarine. Come Please, on. Come let on. me in. Especially if it's all glass. And you imagine that, an all glass submarine. You could just see everything everywhere. Mm. That'd be so cool. What's that Kelsey Grammer movie? Are they they were on a submarine. Uh, X-Men 2? Yes. Is that right? Oh, is it up Periscope? Yes. Or is it down Down Periscope? Down Periscope. Periscope. That's right. I have seen that. Yeah, and the chef farts when they're trying to be quiet so they don't get caught. Yeah, it's good stuff. That is some good (laughs) humour. Sorry to derail, but submarines are stupid. In summary. Please do go on. Uh, Lindbergh, well, this isn't about submarines, thankfully. Uh, Lindbergh also decided to go against the grain and avoid using multiple crew members. <laughs> None of this is about submarines. <laughs> no, you brought up submarines, Jess. Where did they come off again? Periscope and Periscopes. The plane. Periscopes are dumb. Well... Yes, they are. Uh, Lindbergh also decided to go against the grain and avoid using multiple crew members like the other failed attempts. This made them heavier, but it also meant that they could share the flying. Lindbergh chose to fly solo, so he had to do it all on his own. He later said that the random movements of the unstable craft kept him awake. He also reportedly chose a deliberately uncomfortable wicker chair to keep him awake and flew with the windows open. Oh, my God. He had a very little, he had very little room in the cockpit that was so small he couldn't even stretch out his legs. Oh, no. That he, all sounds like a nightmare. It's torture. He was obsessed with keeping the weight down as well. He chose not to have a radio, which sounds crazy, but back then it was extremely heavy and very hard to use. He, he was also rumoured to have cut the top and bottom off his flight map to save a few grams of weight. Oh, my God. Wow. I okay. just wasted error on a map. The border? Who needs it? I'm yeah. with him. Nah, good on him. I agree. Save them grams. And then open the windows up. <laughs> You know, stop all that little bit extra weight, get you there quicker, and then create drag by opening up your windows <laughs> and turning yourself into a big a big parachute. That I know, so I am a scientist. I'm glad you're here. Yeah. I'm always glad you're here, even without science. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. His biggest rivals were Charles Nungasa. Nungasa. And Francois Colley, mm. who left just... <laughs> who left just under two weeks before him, and they were likely to be the first to complete the challenge. But they disappeared aboard the Le Soir Blanc, the white bird, somewhere en route, and that has become one of the greatest aviation mysteries of all time. They what never found them. To them? Oh. Never. They were two very famous pilots at the time. Yeah, one I of them reckon. wore an eye patch and looked like a cool badass. Get in the out. Well. I reckon they landed in the ocean, submarine picked them up, 
They love the sub life. Yeah. Living their best sub life, yo. Yeah. yeah. Love a sub. Love a sub. Uh, if you're listening on YouTube, please subscribe. <laughs> Just say that every half an hour or so. Oh, but this didn't put off Lindbergh. So his enemies, well, so his rivals crashed probably, but this didn't put off Lindbergh. And finally, on the morning of May 27, 1927, it was go time. He took off from a muddy Roosevelt field on Long Island, New York. He hadn't slept since 9am the previous day, but he just had to get going. What the <laughs> fuck? And now you're going to be awake for like 70 hours. Uh, because he was carrying so much fuel, he was so close to the maximum takeoff weight, he only cleared telephone lines at the edge of the field by 20 feet. So he only just managed to take off in time. Despite his tricks, not surprisingly, he started to feel tired three hours into the flight. Yeah, no shit. And he was struggling to stay awake. He was up and down in terms of altitude and skimmed storm clouds at 10,000 feet at night and then flew as low as 10 feet when he was off the Irish coast. 10 feet above the water. Three metres. No. Why? Just up and down. He's just avoiding bad, bad weather. So he's just skimming across the water like a boat. <laughs> or <laughs> or a- he, was, he was 10 feet under the water. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think he was under the sea? <laughs> I think so. He flew blindly into fog for several hours, so he couldn't see anything. Imagine that. Several hours just going, uh, uh, please be no mountain. He had to calculate his course by dead reckoning, where basically you work out how far you've gone by calculating how fast you've been traveling and in what one direction. It's not that accurate. can be kind of dangerous. It works but isn't super reliable, especially when you're flying over an ocean and you can't match where you think you are with objects on the ground. Mm. So you can't be like, all right, uh, if I'm in uh, that spot, I should be able to see, oh, I should be able to see the ocean. I'm going to look out the other window. <laughs> yep, I should be able to see the ocean. Okay, good. Okay. If anything, he'd be concerned if he could see land. Yes. So if anything. It it's ha- good. It should be good. Yeah, <laughs> be as long happy. as all he can see is ocean, then he's good. And he also didn't have a radio, remember, so he can't contact anyone to confirm where he is. Brilliant. Uh, it got a bit harder from here. From fatigue, he started hallucinating and falling asleep for brief periods while flying in and above the fog. Imagine that. You pass, you pass out wake up. Oh, man, it's still on a plane. I'm still on a plane. Yeah, you can't exactly pop it in autopilot and have a nap, can you? No. Even just a 15-minute, you know, little power nap. But after 27 hours, he spotted land, and amazingly, he was only three miles off course, and he was two and a half hours ahead of schedule. What? He landed at Le Bougette Aerodrome at 10.22 p.m. on Saturday, May 21st, having flown for a total of 33 and a half hours. But being awake for like another 24, 24 before, before that. that. Ugh, nightmare, but amazing. He'd done it. He it made it. sounds like a lot of luck. Would that be fair yeah, to say? Yeah, it does sound like He that. later said, like with the fog and stuff, oh, I was taking a calculated risk. I'm not crazy. I wasn't risking my life. It's like, well, you were, ever, I mean, like seven other people, eight other people have died yeah, trying to do you, what you did. 100%. Better pilots than you. Yeah, yeah, much more yeah. experienced and world famous. Bill Bryson writes, one of Matt's. Love Bill. Love Bill. We are, we're touring the Roman Baths in Bath. And you could have an audio guide, which was like a, you know, just a normal one spoken by an unknown voice or the Bill Bryson backstage spectacular. I say I love Bill. I've read two of his books, which were pretty good. That's Yeah, that's I think high praise. I think nice. he's funny. I do. I had to study one at, uh, for lit at uni. Did you? 
Yes. Cool. The first one. The one where he starts by saying, I come from Des Moines. Someone had to. Or something like that. Very good stuff. It's a great start. Yeah. Strong. Strong start. Strong start. Well, Bill Bryson, he says, initially that Charles Lindbergh mis- mistook the aerodrome for some large industrial complex because of the bright lights spreading out in all directions. In fact, they were the headlights of tens of thousands of spectators' cars who had been caught in the largest traffic jam in the history of Paris. And they were all there to attempt to be present for his landing. So they'd heard he was coming and they were ready for his arrival. But you don't know exactly when he's coming, though. No, they don't. So what, they're just waiting out? (laughs) What? No, I need an exact time or I'm not going. Well, I think there was less on back then. No, I'd, I'd be checking the website. Looking at the set times, going 9 p.m. The set times. We'll get there at 8.30. So there's a band so playing there's, in your there's, one. There's, yeah. there's a support act. <laughs> yeah, I assumed another plane would land <laughs> before him. You don't want to get there early, check out the merch? Depends. You want to get a good spot, right? Depends. Up the front? Yeah. Depends on what? Depends on the act? Yep. What if it's the first ever to do music? Like he is, sort of. Wow. Okay. Now that you put it like that, I'm going to drive out there every day hoping he arrives. Tens of thousands of do people greet Do you hear yeah, how hear fucking sincerity. dumb oh, you sound dumb. now? Yeah. Oh. Do you hear that? Yeah, now that you've said that. Yeah. Do you hear how dumb you sound? Now that you've said dumb twice, yeah. I'm starting to hear it. Dave, sorry about Dumbo over there. Well, Dumbo. Is that my ears? Tens of thousands of people turned up to greet Charles Lindbergh and perhaps as many as 150,000 I saw in some places. Either way, the reception was huge and overnight Charles Lindbergh became one of the most famous names on planet Earth. Ortega, the man who inspired all of this, was vacationing in France at the time and travelled to Paris immediately where he met Lindbergh and arranged for the prize to be awarded. And his life after this was never the same. It's hard to fathom the level of sudden interest that surrounded him, but I'll try and put it into some perspective as from what I was reading. His mother's house in Detroit was surrounded by a crowd estimated to be about 1,000. That's just his mum's house. He's not there. He's in Paris, guys. What are they hoping to see? His mum. Again, Matt was right. There was a lot less going on back then. The French Foreign Office flew the American flag, which is the first time it had saluted someone who wasn't a head of state visiting. Speaking of heads of state, President Kelvin Coolidge awarded him the Distinguished Flying Cross and a special act of Congress awarded him the Medal of Honour, despite the fact that it was most always awarded for heroism in combat. This man, who a few weeks before was a humble mailman, had a 10-cent airmail stamp depicting him and the spirit and a map of the flight produced in his honour. So he's gone from delivering mail to now he's on the mail. Cool. He was honoured with multiple awards, including being promoted to the rank of Colonel in the Air Corps. There were banquets and parades where it's estimated that millions of people saw him. Millions turned out to welcome him. On his return to America, there were 500,000 letters and 75,000 telegrams waiting for him. Oh, that's just too overwhelming. Yeah, imagine, imagine, imagine if you opened your emails and you had that many. Ugh. I'd just shut the laptop and walk away, to be honest. I'd probably throw it out a window. <laughs> I'd like, just make it. This is very nice, but too much. Dear Charles Lindbergh, stop. <laughs> Congratulations on the flight. Stop. <laughs> Keep going. Stop. Something like that. <laughs> I believe in you. Don't stop. <laughs> uh, Lindbergh was honoured as the first ever Time Magazine Man of the Year 
Where first he, ever. First ever. Really? Good trivia fact. Where he appeared on the magazine's cover at age 25, January 2nd, 1928, and he remains the youngest ever person of the year. Really? Wow. First and youngest. Even younger than the computer or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the computer was, was person of the year one year. Uh, Travelling around the country, he flew his famous plane to different cities where he gave speeches and participated in parades, and the public just couldn't get enough. He wrote a best-selling book called We. Hmm? Ah, yes. In French? Oh, I assumed spelt. No, W-E is in. It wasn't just me that did this. Uh, it was a team effort. Oh, I was going double E. I thought it was because he pissed where'd, his yeah, pants. Where did he piss? <laughs> did he have a bottle at least? Oh, just piss in a bottle and throw it out the window. That plane would We just let it dribble stick. through the wicker chair. <laughs> That's another beauty of the wicker. Dribble through. Beautiful oh, when you put imagery. Away no, beautiful, Matthew. Well done. That is. That's beautiful. That that's is. Good stuff. Thing of beauty. Learn it from Bill Bryson. <laughs> He's just got away with words. Uh, Travelling around the country, he flew his now famous plane to different cities where he gave speeches and participated in parades. Oh, he had to fly himself there. Ugh. And the public just couldn't get enough. Yeah, like I okay. said, he wrote the book called We, which sold more than 650,000 copies and earned Lindbergh more than $250,000 in royalties. So that's Whoa. 10 times the prize, yes. which is the equivalent now of three and a half million bucks. So the investment was sound. Yeah. He went on a three-month speaking tour to promote the book, flying from city to Syria. City to city. In city the... to Syria. <laughs> no, city to city in the spirit of St. Louis. And this is what the book's Amazon blurb says. You can still buy a copy of We. Quote, the nation became obsessed with Lindbergh during the tour in which he was seen in person by more than 30 million Americans, a quarter of the nation's then population. More than Australia's now population. No other book before or since ever had such an extensive, highly publicised tour that helped promote a book than did Lindbergh's We of himself and the spirit during their 22,350-mile tour of the US. He He visited 82 cities in all 48 continental states, during which the nation's aviation hero delivered 147 speeches and rode 1,290 miles in parades. Jeez. It's, it's, I, I can't actually fathom Yeah, the nothing's reception. happened in our life that would... That's that big. Yeah, give anyone... One in four in that whole country went and, went and saw him. How many books did he sell? But he only sold 650,000 Yeah, that's... I'd be pissed off. You'd be like, 30 million people came out and like... Oh, Dave's doing math. <laughs> Look at the cogs turning. Just like, beat him on your calculator. <laughs> like one in 50 bought a book. One in 50. It's not a great conversion rate for a bookseller. you got to move them units. Jess, you've written a few books. What is your conversion yes. rate like? Um, uh, my mum has bought all of them. Thank really? you. Really? Yes. 100%. Yeah, 100%. That's what you got to do. I, I get an A4 piece of paper. Yeah. I fold it in half. <laughs> And I make one side the front cover, and I write uh, by Jesse P on it, and I draw the cover myself. Oh, that's your non de plume. Oh, shit, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> oh, no. I've given it away. Now mum will know it's me. <laughs> I'm their favourite author. <laughs> I just the real page turner, I've thanks, heard him say. Thanks a lot, Jess. I just can't get enough of these Jesse P novels you keep giving me for Christmas. <laughs> I've tried to find them online to get a few more throughout the year, but... I just they just sold out everywhere. Oh, I know I know a guy, Mum. I'll sort it for you next birthday, and then I write one for a birthday. How many words you normally get in? Six. <laughs> but can we like hear? I obviously don't want to give away the whole. Maybe the first two of six. Dear Mum. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> Are you talking about birthday cards? 
fucking on wait. Hey, you, you call them birthday cards, <laughs> I call them award-winning novels. <laughs> <laughs> what awards have they won? Mummy's favourite book award. <laughs> oh, my Six God. Six years wow. running. And when, how long is so this when you were like, how old? So you've won multiple mummies. Yes. That's amazing. I'm a multi-mummy winner. MMW. I've been alone all day. Can you tell? <laughs> this is nice to be around people. Dave, please go on with the longest right. report you've ever written. I'm sorry we're in ridiculous moods. I mean, at this point you could say that was the report on the Charles Lindbergh Spirit of St. Louis flight. That's right. But there's more. Oh, there is more. There is more. So he's done the tour, which, side note, was organised and funded by Harry Guggenheim from the famous Guggenheim family. Many uh, famous art galleries now. Mm-hmm. During this time, Lindbergh was commonly nicknamed the Lone Eagle and Lucky Lindy, a nickname he apparently hated. Didn't like being seen as lucky. Yeah, makes sense. Nothing, Even though he definitely was. Nothing lucky about that. Yeah. There was a fair bit of luck. Involved. Yeah, I'm confident the luck was involved. Lindbergh's historic flight really helped promote aviation as a whole and led to a 300% increase in the application for pilot's licenses and a 400% increase in the number of licensed aircraft in the United States in the space of one year. Do you reckon we've had a similar kind of percentage influence on podcasts? Everyone's got one now. They didn't three years ago. Australian, the TV show 60 Minutes has a podcast now. You've got a TV show. What's the end goal, 60 Minutes? You've already, you've got a TV show that's been on the air for four decades. You're good. You're fine. Yeah. You don't need to branch out. Get off our toes, Get 60 Minutes. Get off our fucking toes. We're not doing we will t- break your face. Like, let's do a do-go-on TV show called 61 Minutes. Yeah. Oh, 69 Minutes. Am I yeah, right? Yeah, that's a nice title. Why? That's... With ad breaks. Uh, really, you just get Oh, yourself... it's a TV 69 Minutes, yeah. A TV 69 Minutes. And we so it's, get... an hour, it's, it's a two-hour show. We get 23 minutes each. You can do whatever you want with your 23 minutes. I'm going to write a book. On live on air. Yep, we can do whatever we want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in summary, at this stage in his life, he's huge. He's bigger than the Beatles. Hmm? The Beatles aren't around yet, though, right? That's so why we... he's bigger than. Okay. Them. Okay. Yeah. Makes it a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> it does. <laughs> but he was huge. That's incredible. So everything's going great, and he's on top of the world. Now all he needs is a partner in crime to share it all with. <gasps> he's getting into crime. Love that. Love that. What do you get a man who's got everything? Still Crime. something. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got you this. Crime. I got I you got... some crime. I know you already got your own watch, but have you got a stolen watch? <laughs> Here, you're going to do time for this timepiece. All right. <laughs> 60 minutes. <laughs> At the request of the US government, Lindbergh flew to 16 different Latin American countries in December 1927 as a symbol of American goodwill. What a beautiful symbol. <laughs> I'm going to visit you. Hey, here's our guy. During his trip to Mexico, he met Anne Spencer Morrow, the daughter of Dwight W. Morrow. From the, the Morrow Bar. Lava Morrow. You a Morrow fan? Spelled differently. Oh. oh. Sorry. Oh. But Morrows are good, aren't they? Morrows are good. They're, some people call them the poor man's Mars Bar. I like it. I think they're good. Yeah. They're the rich man's something else. Milky Bar. Milky Bar. Because it's got the caramel in it. Yeah, that's on Milky Way is what I meant. The rich man's time out, a.k.a. not a waste of your time. <laughs> Basically. So, anyway, back to Charles. In Mexico, he married Anne Spencer 
Morrow is the daughter of Dwight W. Morrow, the American ambassador mm. in Mexico. They married in a private ceremony on May 27th, 1929. Aww. Charles taught his new wife to fly, and they went on many flying expeditions together throughout the world, charting new routes for various airlines. I always admire couples who find a way to live and work together. Yeah. I think that is it brings its own set of challenges, but with that, its own set of rewards. Sonny and Cher, Hillary and Bill Clinton. Yeah. Uh, and bags. Cl- clowns. I always go to Posh and Becks. Posh and Becks. And I always get shot down, so I'm glad you went with me there. Thank you. No, but what? what? They don't live together? They don't work together? They don't love together? I mean, love is work, but they get it done, you know? <laughs> if, you want, if you want your relationship to work, it's going to take work. Yeah. They don't call it work for nothing. Mm. Preach. Mm. Thank you. If you want to come to my love seminar, <laughs> um, you can go to the same website Dave quoted before for tickets. Do go on pod.com. <laughs> yeah, it's all, it'll also be at the live Melbourne International Comedy Festival show. Yeah. I'm going to do inside of that, I'm going to do a quick love, love seminar. seminar. Love really that. hoping we can hold you to that. <laughs> We will not remember. <laughs> no, but somebody will. <laughs> Someone will just yell out halfway through a report, love seminar. And we'll be hey, like, uh, thanks for coming out. I'll take this one. <laughs> <laughs> what if you just gave one tip each week? Great. For how to be a good partner. <laughs> just how to be a good partner. <laughs> one tip. <laughs> I'll do some research. <laughs> you give out a couple of tips. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hang on. You get it? Huh? <laughs> I reckon that'd be a great segment on our TV show, 69 Minutes. <laughs> Love tip. Love tip. <laughs> love tip. Baby, love tip. Dave, you're distracting yourself now. Sorry. They so got now they're flying they got together. They're flying together. And Anne uh, also became the first American woman to earn a first-class glider pilot's license. So she's a bit of a she's badass in her own right. sick. I love her because her name's Anne, like all the best people. Uh, Lindbergh, <laughs> Lindbergh closed the chapter on his headline-grabbing flight when a year and two days after the journey, Lindbergh flew the Spirit of St. Louis from St. Louis to Washington, D.C., where he donated the plane to the Smithsonian Institution, and it's been on display there ever since. Oh, we should go cool. go get there. They still have... Isn't, it, isn't that so cool? So in 19... You know, often it's like it, it takes a long time before it becomes famous. Yeah. He flew it there and said, there you go, and it's been like one of their... They've also got one of the Wright Flyers from the Wright Brothers. Wow. Uh, one of their most famous exhibitions ever since. We should go touch it. Can I lick it? Do you reckon? Yeah. Thank you. Of course you can. They wouldn't let me lick the skin book. Oh. <laughs> Don't bring that up. When again. he said we, you were talking about me and Jess and everyone in the world. Yeah, and the fact that it was behind glass. No, but they did not stop me licking the glass. <laughs> we know, buddy. We had to escort you out. <laughs> you had to escort me. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, he's donated the spirit of St. Louis, but Charles continued to overachieve. Britannica writes... When he was not flying, Lindbergh worked with Nobel Prize winning surgeon Alexis Carroll, Alexis Carroll on the development of the perfusion pump, a device that allows organs to be kept alive outside the body. While the perfusion pump did not see widespread use, it demonstrated the feasibility of preserving organs through artificial means and acted as a precursor for the heart-lung machine. So now he's inventing shit. Shit. In 1930, Anne gave birth to their... F- gave birth to their first child, a son named Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. Now the third one in the line. Ah. Cute. Yeah, right. So it's not Junior Junior. It's just Junior. Hmm. Do you reckon they called him Cal because that's his initials? I think you have to think about that when you're naming a kid. Think about the initials, I say to my parents. You reckon? I'm Jap. Oh, okay. Yeah, from the, the great character from Poirot. Yeah, you're right. 
Spectre Jap. God, they're good. All right, Poirot. Get out of here, Poirot. This is a police work. Poirot. Poirot. If you haven't seen it, it's that's very accurate. And if you have seen it, that's not very accurate. Well done. <laughs> so now on to, basically, this is part two. Charles Lindbergh, the life, the story. In 1932, the family moved to a home in rural New Jersey, New Jersey, to escape the press coverage that followed them everywhere. They're hip. They're happening. They're but like they're, the it couple. But, but the press won't go to New Jersey. <laughs> oh, no, thank like, you. Oh, we really want to, you know, paparazzi them. But... What, was that, what was that quote about Des Moines that that guy? Uh, Somebody had to come yeah, from there. Yeah. I, came from, I was born in Des Moines. Someone had to be or something like that. Yeah. That guy. <laughs> Who was it again? Bill Bryson. Bill Bryson. Oh, Bill Bryson. Yeah, nice. Uh, there were the, so they went to New Jersey. Uh, they were building a large estate, basically big walls, big land, so people can't get close to them and their family. The home was not yet finished though, and they went and stayed at the estate on the weekends only. On Tuesday, on March first, nineteen thirty-two, the family decided to stay the night for the first time on a weeknight because little Charlesburg Lindbergh Jr. was sick, and they didn't want him to have to travel. Sure. Apart from that anomaly, everything seemed normal. Then the absolutely unthinkable happened. At about 10 p.m. That Submarine. Close. <laughs> oh, that was thinkable. You thought it. Oh. Dave's going to say something that's unthinkable. So how's he going to say it? You're not going to be able to guess it. Well, he can read. It's, it's not unreadable. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Whether it's your first ever website or your business is expanding, Squarespace makes it easy to create a beautiful website and engage with your audience. Upload video content, organize your video library and showcase your content on beautiful video pages. You can even sell access to your video library by adding a paywall to your content. Cha-ching. <laughs> you can help with written content on your website with Squarespace AI, which I used to write this next sentence, so check this out. Generate instant, personalised results that know and show your brand identity. Explain what your site is about, choose your tone, and enter what you need to get short or long-form text. Squarespace AI, Squarespace AI makes it easier to go live, stand out, and succeed online. Oh, Dave, if only it could also not just write it, but read it too. <laughs> And edit it. <laughs> hey, sell exclusive content on your site by adding a paywall to sell memberships or courses. Or sell files your customers can download like PDFs, music or ebooks. Man, it's starting to sound like I'm obsessed with money. <laughs> <laughs> and you are. So head to squarespace.com slash do go on for a free trial and to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. It's readable. Some think, but Dave can think it now because he knows it. Well, he can't think it. That's the thing. He's got blank thing in his head. He's just reading it. And we can say, "What did you say?" But he's read it before, well, which means see. now he knows it, so he can think well, it. I don't think he can think. I think he's got no memory of it. Let's, well, let's find out. Okay, it's written down here for me. At about ten p.m. that night, it was discovered that the twenty-month-old Charles Lindbergh Jr. had been kidnapped. Okay, Dave, what did you just say? 
You just said a sentence. What was it? Wow. Dave? You okay? Sorry, I just uh, pick up from where I left off. At about 10 p.m. that night, it was discovered that the 20-month-old Charles Lindbergh Jr. had been kidnapped. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> never read that before. <laughs> and, um, oh, no. I know. Honestly, this is a pretty sad part of the story. I'm sorry. At 7.30 p.m., the family nurse, Betty Go. Go. I knew that would get her going. I knew that would make you go. Betty Go. Betty Go. G-O? G-O. That's not a fucking name. It's a beautiful name. Betty Go. Betty Go. Oh, my goodness. Well, Betty Go had gone and put little Charles to sleep at about at 7.30, as I said. Then at 9.30 p.m., Charles Lindbergh Sr. was in the library just below the baby's room and heard a noise that he imagined to be slats breaking off a crate in the kitchen. Don't know why that's normal to him, but he was like, that's not, nothing. Not at 9.30 p.m. Back yeah. then, a lot of things were delivered in crates to kitchens. True. Sort of fact there. <laughs> but now the boy was gone. He had been taken from the second floor bedroom. A search of the premises was immediately made and a ransom note demanding $50,000 was found on the nursery was found on the nursery windowsill. It was terribly written. This is what it read. Dear sir, have $50,000 with the dollar sign at the end of the number, not at the start. And all the numbers are written like that. Ready, spelled R-E-D-Y, in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money, M-O-N-Y. We warn you for making any ding public or for the police, spelled with an S. The child is in gut care. I think good care. Indication for all letters are signature and three holds. Don't understand that last bit. I think this means at the bottom of the note there were two interconnected blue circles surrounding a red circle with a hole punched through the red circle and two more holes to the left and right. That was the original MasterCard symbol. So they were just saying, we do accept cards. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we do accept credit cards. Uh, it was almost like some sort of signature or calling card. Right. Okay. I th- I would In my head, this might be naive, but I imagine back then um, – Literary standards weren't as high, maybe in schools and stuff. So maybe that's just just an uneducated crim, maybe. Yeah, well, it's not that wild, but it's like like they're they're not crazy spelling mistakes. They're just a few like um, phonetically spelt words, like police with an s, stuff like that. Classic Matt, always defending the kidnappers. Well, I don't want to do that. I'm just wondering, <laughs> you know, what 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 got them to that point? And but why are you wondering that, Matt? Because you feel sorry for them. I don't know. Look, I just... You're just siding with the people no, who just kidnapped not, the baby. No, I'm not siding with them. I, I hope that this turns out really well in the next sentence or so. Uh, $50,000 is the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars now. It was a huge amount of money, especially during the Great Depression. Yeah. People are really struggling. During the search at the kidnapping scene, traces of mud were found on the floor of the nursery. Footprints, impossible to measure, were found under the nursery window. Impossible to measure because mm. they... D- didn't have a measuring tape on hand or... I just think that they were, uh, it was so muddy that they couldn't right. get a proper just... print. Yeah, okay. Also found was two sections of a homemade but ingeniously designed wooden ladder that had three parts that slotted together to make it easier to travel with. So that's how they got to the second floor of the house Shit. from the outside. It was clear that they'd obviously put a lot of planning in. One of the two sections was split or broken where it joined the other indicating that the ladder had been broken during the ascent or descent. The police dusted for fingerprints, but none were found, neither was any blood. Word of the horrifying crime quickly spread and became huge news. 
the Lindbergh family, who basically are kind of like the American royal family this stage, they're so famous, were inundated by offers of assistance and false reports and clues. Even Al Capone, the famous mobster, offered his help from prison. There was huge speculation that the crime was the work of other mobsters. Capone offered assistance in return for being released from prison under the pretense that his assistance would be more effective. But his offer was denied. Can I go for an early guess theory? Please. So they were just building the house, right? So people who might know the layout of the house could include people who were hired to build it, whether it's like one of the, you know, trades people, somebody working on the house. Maybe the architect. Architect knows the layout of the house. Otherwise, how would you know? It's a big place. Maybe someone in council who approved the plans. Maybe. Maybe someone with a big pair of binoculars. Oh, or a periscope, a land periscope. (laughs) A giant periscope. Uh, There was no immediate word from the kidnappers, so Lindbergh made widespread appeals for the kidnappers to start negotiations. Various underworld characters were dealt with in attempts to contact the kidnappers. So he went to the mobsters and said, if you know anything, let me know. Yeah. Then a second ransom note arrived by mail on March 6, 1932. It had been postmarked in Brooklyn and New York on March 4 and contained the same red circle signature. So they were like, this is genuine. Mm. In the second letter, the ransom demand was increased to $70,000. Charles Lindbergh, the colonel and American hero, didn't trust the police and used his influence to control the investigation himself. He hired his own private investigators as well. He even kept the ransom notes and his correspondence with the kidnappers secret from the police. So people have since questioned whether he himself had something to hide. But not involving the police, like not inviting the police into his world. Yeah. Hmm. What's he, what's what's in it for him? Well, we can talk about some theories. But then a third ransom note was received by Colonel Lindbergh's attorney two days later and the letter informed the family that the person that they'd offered as an intermediary would not be accepted. So they said, okay, how about our friend, Frank, or whatever his name is, he'll be the one that delivers the money and negotiates with you. And they said, we don't don't want to deal with that guy. Right. What's wrong with Frank? We don't know who who Frank was. Was it Frank Sinatra? We don't know. Yeah. He's the chairman of the board. I would have got him involved. Oh, Blue Eyes. Why would we not get him involved? You don't want to meet Frank Sinatra. Okay. Weird. Your loss. God, they're criminals and stupid. Yeah, criminally stupid. That's <laughs> So the guy that they've offered has been denied. And on that same day, a man called Dr. John F. Condon. Con- condom? It is condom with an N instead of an M at the end. Oh, okay. Dr. John F. Condon, who I hadn't realised how funny that is until now, a 72-year-old retired school principal. Oh, God. Oh, no. Well, Mr. Condon's Condon. <laughs> they were the kids would have called him Dinger for sure. <laughs> in New York. Hey, Dinger. <laughs> Do a New York. Is this in New York? Do a yep. New York accent and say Dinger. Hey, Dinger. I'm Dinging here. I thought it was Jersey. They're all the same today. Very close. I don't even know it's what the Jersey the next means. state across. Right. Anyway, Dr. John F. Condon, who was a 72-year-old retired school principal that did not personally know the Lindberghs. His first name means toilet and his last name (laughs) means dinger. The F stands for fuck. (laughs) John fuck Condon. Toilet fuck Condon. John, what are you putting out here? So he published a letter in the Bronx Home News, a newspaper at the time, that offered his services to act as a go-between the Lindberghs and the kidnappers and even offered to pay an additional $1,000 ransom himself if they chose him. 
Wait, Dude, why? Just a random guy. He thought, maybe I could help him out. I'll be the intermediary. And the way he volunteered was by publishing a note in the newspaper. And he said, if you want to get in contact, this is my address. And I'll pay you for the... Or he's saying, pay me a thousand or... No, he was saying, pay- I'll pay you a thousand dollars if you pick me. What? I don't... Yeah, it's weird. Well, the following day, the fourth ransom note arrived. And it arrived at the house of Dr. John Condon. So right. the kidnappers saw the letter and went, okay. It, they indicated that he would be acceptable as a go-between. The letter was deemed authentic as it also contained the Red Circle signatures. The Lindberghs, hearing this, subsequently also authorised Dr. John Condon to act as their intermediary. Just this random guy. Mm. Who put a letter in the newspaper. And the, ra- and the kidnappers went, yeah, we'll go with him. And then Lindbergh went, yeah, okay, we'll go with him. That does seem a bit strange. Yeah, but but he, he, he did have a history, like a school principal is a pretty trustworthy yeah, kind of Yeah, apparently group. he was highly respected in the community. Right. It did appear like he just wanted to help. But still, oh. such a weird thing to do. From that point on, a series of communications between Dr. Condon and the kidnappers followed. All through the newspaper. All through, they keep publishing letters to each other. Condon used the name Jeffsy as a moniker, because, uh, which was derived from his initials, J-F-C. So that was his code name, so that the kidnappers would know they're talking to the real... Because I imagine anyone can put a letter in the newspaper, but his was Jaffsey. Following the kidnappers' latest instructions, Condon placed a classified ad in the New York American reading, quote, Money is ready, Jaffsey. It's crazy. This is from the FBI website in the case, which has a great article on it. At 8.30pm on March 12, after receiving an anonymous telephone call, Dr. Condon received the fifth ransom note delivered by Joseph Perone, a taxi cab driver who received it from an unidentified stranger. The message stated that another note would be found beneath a stone at a vacant stand 100 feet from an outlying subway station. This note, the sixth letter, was found by Condon as indicated. So it's now it's real spy shit. Uh-huh. A random taxi driver delivers a note to you that says, go to this place, you'll find another note, and that will tell you where, we're, where we meet. Oh. Sounds like a f- almost like a fun game. Mm, a wild crazy. goose chase. Oh, no funner game than a goose chase. I could not agree more. Oh, those things are crazy. They're violent. The sixth letter instructed Jaffsy to meet one of the kidnappers late at night at the Woodland Cemetery. Oh, that's... Why always a cemetery? Meet on a submarine. <laughs> Oh, you're back on board submarines. Well, I don't know how I feel about it. I think you're inboard submarines. <laughs> yeah, if you're on and it goes under. Yeah, you're oh, in big boy. trouble. Oh, dear. Hold on. <laughs> Hold your breath. Hold your hat. <laughs> don't lose that hat. <laughs> oh, oh, bloody up. Oh. <laughs> hope you can swim. <laughs> he travelled to the cemetery with a bodyguard until he met the kidnapper and he had to meet him alone. There was a man calling himself John who had a European accent. The two men discussed the ransom and how it would be paid. Jaffsy wanted proof that the baby was alive before they paid the money. So they, they parted ways. Jaffsy soon received a seven letter that contained baby Charlie's sleeping suit, proof that they were dealing with the real kidnappers. Right. Doesn't prove he's alive and now no. proves that he's naked. Yeah, that's right. I doubt they, when they kidnapped him, they also packed nappies mm. and some changes of clothes. And so now the kid's naked and possibly alive. Oh, one, a really tragic thing is... Um, Charles Lindbergh's wife, and she published in the newspaper an instruction of his diet and what she fed him every day in case the kidnappers saw it and could keep up his, what he usually eats. Tragic. 
Uh, several more letters were delivered over the next few days until it was finally time to make the payment to the kidnappers. $50,000 was raised and the ransom was packaged in a wooden box that was custom made in the hope that it could later be easily identified. The money was cleverly paid in gold certificates, which is a form of payment that was about to be withdrawn from circulation and no longer accepted at a lot of places. This would hopefully mean that the kidnapper would have to get rid of them quickly and also draw attention to themselves for using an unusual form of currency. Yeah. People remember you paying in gold gold certificates rather than just cash. It's like if somebody pays with a check now and you're like, why? Mm. What are you hiding? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the bills were, knocked, were not marked, but their serial numbers were recorded in the hope to be recognised later. Yep. The 11th ransom note was delivered to Jaffsey on April 2nd, 1932 by another unidentified taxi driver who had received it from an unknown man. Dr. Condon found the 12th ransom note under a stone in the front of a greenhouse in the Bronx as instructed in the 11th note. Hmm. How long has this been going on for by now? Sorry. The baby's graduated high school. (laughs) (laughs) It's been going on for over a month. The baby is a man. Over a month. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my yeah, God. Yes, so it was the start of March and now we're into April. This is insane. April. Imagine the stress of the family mm. the whole time not oh knowing. Oh, God. Shortly thereafter, after receiving the 12th letter, on the same evening, by following the instructions in that note, Condon again met kidnapper John. He explained that he only had $50,000, even though the second letter had asked for $70,000. Kidnapper accepted it. The money was handed to the stranger in exchange for a 13th note, containing instructions that said the kidnapped child could be found on a boat named Nellie near Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. What? The stranger then walked north into the park woods. Lindbergh himself led the search of Nellie. Sadly, nothing was found. The team of investigators were forced to concede that they had gained nothing in return for the ransom and the kidnapper had vanished. The trail went cold for a number of weeks after this, but then on May 12, 1932... William Allen, an assistant truck driver, pulled over for a nature break. And whilst in the bushes not far from the road, he discovered the partly buried body of a toddler. No. Sadly, it was Charlie and he was ultimately found less than five miles from his home. The body was badly decomposed but positively identified. The coroner's examination showed that the child had been dead for about two months and the cause of death was a blow to the head. It appeared as though he had died on the night of the kidnapping (gasps) and the whole thing had been a ruse. Oh, no. Charles Lindbergh insisted on an immediate cremation, which some people questioned, but I can understand. Tell Uh, me they find him. Tell uh, me they find him. The U.S. Bureau of Investigation, which is now the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, had until the discovery of the body been acting in a purely advisory capacity. That is because it actually hadn't been a federal crime at this point, so they couldn't involve themselves too much. But then on May 13th, President Herbert Hoover authorised the Bureau to serve as the primary federal agency on the case, and the full resources of the U.S. Department of Justice were committed to the investigation of the crime. They were like, all right, now it's a murder. We've got, to, we've got to solve this. Murder and extortion and... All sorts of stuff. stuff. Oh, man. This is fucked, Dave. What are you doing? People are wanting to learn about... Th- like like about it, My Little Ponies or something, you know? Or a man who goes on a nice plane yeah, trip and then writes we... a book. <laughs> stop oh. there. Stop when he's pa- like 25. Enough. He's I done enough. Happily we, ever after. We could have stopped in part one. No, Dave, I understand what you're doing and I is a gr- an amazing and interesting story. Please continue, despite Matt having his head in his hands. Can I go on? Yeah. 
Otherwise, it will forever remain unsolved. <gasps> so they get him. No, How- we're going to solve it. Household, well, I'll give you the, the facts here. Household and estate employees were repeatedly questioned and investigated and police started to suspect an inside job. Mm, mm. The Lindberghs had been in their New Jersey home on a Tuesday for the first ever time. So how did the kidnappers know that they would even be there and which bedroom that Charlie would be sleeping in on the second floor of That's the like mansion? That's what I said. Yeah. How do they know? How do they know? Because it's out of the, it's, yeah. Because even if you said someone was routine. someone in the bushes, like how would you know? Like, it's not, it's not a routine at all. Yeah. No, they're never there on a Tuesday. It's yeah. just that he happened to be sick. Violet Sharp, a waitress in the home of Mrs. Lindbergh's mother, Mrs. Dwight Morrow, was under investigation by the authorities. She, she apparently seemed nervous when questioned and had given contradictory testimony regarding her whereabouts on the night of the kidnapping. She committed suicide by swallowing a silver polish that contained potassium cyanide when she was about to be interviewed again. Again, this looks very suspicious on her behalf. However, her movements on the night of March 1st, 1932 had been carefully checked and it was soon definitely ascertained that she had no connection with the abduction. Even if, like, information? Well, police were later criticised for their tactics and it appeared that she took her own life out of fearing losing her job and the threat posed by the police. It was just the... Yeah, wow, just the stress of the whole situation and made her so anxious. Yeah, and it's also been speculated over the years that she may have felt guilty for possibly accidentally tipping off the kidnappers about their movements, maybe telling a stranger at the shops about what they were doing that night, oh. that week, and that she felt so guilty that you know she felt like it was her fault. Wow. And then when the police are like, did you do it? Did you do it? You know, obviously made her have a breakdown. God. So, but they're thinking inside job at this stage. A pamphlet of the security numbers of all the gold certificates that the kidnappers had was given to each employee handling, handling currency in places like banks, grocery stores, insurance companies, that kind of places. And everyone that got given the pamphlet were asked to keep a lookout for the t- certificates. Mm. For a long time, none turned up. But then finally, a lead. <gasps> On September 18, 1934, a Manhattan bank teller noticed a gold certificate from the ransom, matched the numbers up, and in the margin of the bill was a New York license plate and the name of a gas station manager. It had been written there by the manager of a gas station who had then cashed the certificate. The gas manager had written down all the license number because his customer was acting, quote, suspiciously and was possibly a counterfeiter. So oh. he just happened to write down the number plate in case that guy turned out to be dodgy. The license plate was tracked down to Richard Hauptmann, a German immigrant who had been living in the US and working as a carpenter for 11 years. He was then arrested. He was found to be carrying a single $20 gold certificate, but then when his house was searched, over $14,000 of the ransom money was found (gasps) in his garage. Houtman claimed that a friend had given him the money to hold on to and that he had no connection to the crime. But they put him on trial and it was absolutely sensational and was dubbed the trial of the century. I bet. This took place in Flemington, a small town in central New Jersey, a town of only about 2,700 people. Then the trial started. 700 reporters, cameramen and videographers descended on the place. There were also 5,000 spectators, nearly double the population of the town. God, imagine owning an Airbnb or something. Oh, Oh, you could cash in. You got a little motel, hotel, holiday inn. (laughs) You are booked out. You're booked solid. Oh. And you turn to your wife, Margaret, and you're like, we're going on a holiday this year, honey. And she's like, what's a holiday? We've never had one of those. And you're like, well, now we are. 
But she knew. She was just she knew. She was already bloody looking through pamphlets. She was. She was just being, oh, what, are we, oh, what do you mean? <laughs> She's already, like, buying new swimsuits. Oh, multiple suits. Yeah. Man, oh, they, like, they are star. cashing in. Yeah, well, with one sweat, <laughs> go put on a dry one. Yeah. Come on, guys, don't make me explain how to travel to you. No, it's nothing. Quick dry uh, bodies weren't invented yet. No. Nothing worse than wet clothing when you're going swimming. Ugh. Am I right? Hate it. Awful. Yuck. So the trial started and it turned out Hauptmann had a criminal record in Germany. He was arrested for stealing strips of leather. As he was awaiting trial, he escaped from prison, leaving his prison clothes neatly folded in his cell with a note that read, Best wishes to the police. Oh, you cheeky little shit. What a cheeky bastard. He was also rumoured to have used a ladder to climb into the mayor's house to steal money and watches. Ah, so he knows what a ladder is. And it also once held up two ladies pushing a pram and a baby at gunpoint to rob them. Oh, my God. So he's got no compassion for babies. That's right. So he had form for ladder crime and crime against babies. Mm. He sounds like a definite guy. Is he the one? After he'd escaped from jail, he'd stowed away on a steamship that then lied his way through US immigration. Wait. Wait, what? Oh, this, this is, is on his way in. Yeah, so this yeah. is how he got to America. So he escaped from prison and then got on a ship, stowed away, then got to America and lied about. And back then, it's obviously a lot harder to look people's criminal records up. Yeah. And they were like, all right, come on in. All right. You say you're not lying? And he worked. Yeah. yeah oh. I've never lied in my life. All right. Well, checks out. That seems to be. It. You sure you're not lying? Oh, uh, no. If you're lying, you have to tell me. That's the rule. Oh, okay, That's a okay. lawyer in America. Hold on. Are you a cop? Because you have to tell me. Uh, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm a I'm federal agent. I'm wearing, so I'm, I'm wearing a uniform. So I'm asking these questions. Uh, apart from the money found in his possession, which is obviously fairly damning, other circumstantial evidence was used against him. Examination of the ransom notes by handwriting ex- experts resulted in virtually unanimous opinion that all the notes were, were written by the same person and that the writer was of German nationality. Oh what? God. They could narrow spent that some down. some time in America. Just with the phrasing and putting the, where the symbols had been, that kind of being. Sure. Thought a European immigrant or a German immigrant. I was thinking before, like, because technology's moved so far, I would try and change my writing. So I was like, I'll just write with my right hand. And then I was like, they'd know that now, wouldn't they? They'd be like, this isn't written with their natural hand. Their preferred hand, this is a, a left hand writing right hand. What have you spent 10 years training up your right hand and no one ever knew that you could also write? Right. Well, they know now, fuckhead. Shit. <laughs> what about what you use your mouth? Yeah. Like how um, do they identify that? Yeah, I don't think they can. Someone in The Simpsons did that. I think it might have been the danger danger man writing a, a letter to Bart when he had oh, it yeah, fully yeah, plastered yeah. up in hospital <laughs> after jumping into the pool with swimming lions, which I reckon we mention on here once a month. Lance Murdoch. Lance Murdoch. <laughs> there, Bart. When he's not in action, he's in traction, traction, traction. <laughs> he's okay, folks. So they've identified that a German wrote the notes. That's, That's wild said. to me. Our tool marks on the ladder used in the kidnapping appeared to match tools owned by Hauptmann, found in his house, and a wood expert was engaged to examine the ladder used in the kidnapping. The wood used in the ladder matched a missing beam from the floor in Hauptmann's attic. Okay. So it's missing a piece of wood. That- Why is this case? Is of a... I'd be saying my gavel down. Yeah. I'd be like, I've heard enough. Was, oh, we've got more evidence. Don't need it. No, here we, I'll just read it out just in case. It was also ascertained that he was in possession of a Dodge sedan automobile, which answered the description that had been seen in the vicinity of the Lindbergh home the day prior to the kidnapping. Yeah. Did he have muddy boots? 
Additionally, Condon, a.k.a. Jaffsy, the intermediary between the kidnapper and Lindbergh's, his telephone number was found written on a closet door frame in Hauptmann's home. Oh, for fuck's sake. Why are you? I... When they asked him, had, and it also said his name, and they said, how did it get there? He said, oh, I must have read it in the newspaper and just written it down. I've been following the case. I've been, a, you know, I've been into the case. You know, I've been trying to, trying to maybe solve it myself. Super sus. Uh, his face also looks a lot like the sketch that was done based on Jaffsy's description of the man he'd met in the cemetery. And then Jaffsy unequivocally identified Hauptmann as the John that he'd met and given the ransom money to. Oh, my God. Charles Lindbergh himself took the stand testifying that he recognised Hauptmann's voice from the night of the ransom payment. What? It was all adding up against the German suspect. Oh, no, but I feel like there's a but coming. Britannica writes... When defence attorneys called Hauptmann to the witness stand, he professed total innocence, claimed that he'd been subjected to beatings by the police and stated that he'd been forced to produce handwriting samples that matched the ransom notes. That's what he said. But after more than five weeks of testimony and 11 hours of deliberation, the jury returned a guilty verdict on February 13, 1935, and Hauptmann was sentenced to death. Hauptmann, Denying until the end any involvement in the crime was executed by electric chair a little over a year later on April 3rd, 1936. Whoa, this, this guy's life took a real turn. You know, it was so interesting in that part one. It's fascinating. What if I told you that there is a part three? Fuck me. It's a crazy life. Uh, so Houtman, his wife lived decades on beyond him, never took her wedding ring off and always said, no, my husband's innocent. It wasn't him, wasn't him until she died only a couple of decades ago. But, but it's, So it sounds like it's not at all disputed. But over the years, as you can imagine, with a case dubbed the crime of the century, many theories have been put forth. Dozens of books, documentaries on the kidnapping. Uh, in 2005, the true TV show Forensic Files, true TV is the name of the network. I'm not trying to say that it's, it's true. But <laughs> the Forensic Files re-examined evidence from the Lindbergh case. Both of their forensic document examiners concluded that Hauptmann had written the ransom notes and their wood grain expert found that the rail from the kidnapper's ladder had come from his attic. So books have been written saying it wasn't him, that he was set up, that he's a patsy, all this kind of stuff. Books have also been written about how Charles Sr. himself was involved, that maybe he'd accidentally killed his son and then faked this letter, oh. faked these, this stuff to sort of cover it up. I personally don't buy into that, but I've just got to say in case there are already people listening on that are like, oh, I, I reckon he was set up. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Just when they're – because I'm going – Obviously, all this evidence points directly to him, but that if he was set up, then you yeah, know, writing the, idea, yeah. the phone number on his wall and so, but him not saying, oh, I did do it because I'm following the case makes it more sus than him going, I swear I didn't write this. I did not write that. But even then, would you fully believe someone? Yeah, that's right. And also, because I, I kind of like Jaffsy, the guy that met him, obviously, he's pretty keen to say it's definitely him. So even him positively identifying him, to me, I'd be like, well, oh, maybe that's. Him just wanting to yeah. find the murderer. But stuff like the wood. He had the wood that matched in his house. He the had car. the gold in his garage. Yeah, that's the big one. Yeah, you had the money. And he said, and there were other, there's other stuff I've read, like uh, he stopped working soon after after the kidnapping and that he went back to Germany on an expensive holiday with his wife. Oh, okay. And it's like, oh, he's never been wealthy before. Just little things like that. Yeah. And he's saying like, oh, a friend is getting me to hold the money. Okay, well, who's your who's friend? You? Oh, well, it turned out that the friend had conveniently died. And he said, oh, the friend owed me lots of money, so that's why he left it with me. And, and did then, he and say then people, who the friend was? 
Yeah, he said, and then they, he said who the friend was, and, and he had died. But people were like, "That guy could barely pay his rent. He does not have fourteen thousand dollars secretly right. hidden away." So, to me, it just all stacked up. Yeah, yeah totally. It all stacked up. This feels open and shut. Yeah, and from- the the two documentaries that I watched in researching of this, modern people from the FBI and, and criminal investigators are like, "He did it." Yeah. Obviously, with a famous case, people say he didn't do it, but he did it. Just what a piece of shit. Yeah, I wonder why. Why just for the money? But then, well, the I money, mean, there it, are speculation that maybe the that whilst the baby out the window that it fallen yeah. or injured itself, it immediately died. They panicked and let's just hide it. And they were like, "Well, now we've killed a baby. We're going to go to jail forever. Regardless, we may as well try and make the money." Right. But obviously, you got to be a psychopath to plot this stuff in the first place. Hundred percent to plot and then to go. I'm taking money. From you to get your baby back, which I know I've killed. Oh no! That, that, yeah. You're a bad guy. You're a bad guy. Oh. Also, he probably had accomplices that got away with it. Right. People are like, you wouldn't just do that on your own. Get the ladder up there. Go up there. Grab Is, the baby. It, it's how about planning to like look after a, a young child for that long as well. Yeah, it's such a long time. And also I I like the people who say, "Oh, well, it was the dad. It was he accidentally killed the kid and then in his panic and grief plotted a very elaborate yeah. cover-up in Sh- which he fr- like no. Surely yeah. he just goes oh, yeah, maybe yeah. There's no way he's I I hate this story. Yep. Well, there is a part 3. The rest of Lindbergh's life. I went up finally closing part two. Public outrage, public outrage led the U.S. Congress to pass the Federal Kidnapping Act, which is known colloquially as the Lindbergh Law, not long after in 1932, the day that would have been Charles's second birthday. The Lindbergh Law made kidnapping across state lines a federal crime and stipulated that such an offence could be punished by death. This also means that the FBI could have been involved much faster, mm. who may have done a better job investigating it yep. than local police. Also... Lindbergh probably didn't do himself any favors by trying to be in charge of the investigation himself. Yeah, not going but to I mean, police. it sounds like the uh, none of that would have changed that his kid died because that course. happened straight yes. away. No, but the money may... went, and the money actually led to them finding the guy. So, True. in the end, I don't think it could have. Oh no, there's no he couldn't have saved his. It son. wouldn't have been a different outcome. His son, the, yeah. he got most of the money back, I suppose, as well because it was all sitting in the garage. I don't think. Yeah. It actually didn't. I mean, a lot of man hours maybe wasted. But what if they got in earlier? How do they find him without that direct, yeah, um, the money evidence? But it wasn't even all of the money, was it? No, they didn't. That, a lot of the money remained but, and, unaccounted for. And also, mm. maybe that is maybe uh, the the worker who um, uh, killed herself. Maybe that maybe that was why she, her guilt was that. Oh, I did mention it to this German guy. Maybe that. Yeah, it could have been something like something that. Something like oh, that. No, I actually, that's right. I told someone something. I shouldn't have you said just that. Wish or I answered said... the phone and said, they asked to speak to the daughter because she works for the mother. Oh, no, they're up at New Jersey this week. Yeah. You should try them on this number. And then realizing later, that's how they would have known. Yeah, jeez. Mm. Be paranoid all the time is the lesson. Don't be paranoid all the time. Trust no one. No, trust people. Nah, don't. Fox Mulder, trust no one. <laughs> Obviously, heartbroken by the death of his son. Charles got on with the rest of his life, but the rest of his life is quite controversial, to say the least. It's already been a long report, and I wanted to mainly focus on his early life. 
and the crime of the century, but I'll give you a brief overview of the rest of his days. Hounded by the press and worried for the safety of their surviving son, the Lindberghs fled to Europe. They were given diplomatic passports and given passage on a private ship to the UK. So the government really helped them out. We're not talking a submarine. A not diplomatic immunity. Yeah, they got given from the South African government. Wow. To Europe. <laughs> diplomatic submarine. <laughs> uh, after a six-month stay in Britain, the Lindberghs travelled to Germany, where things get controversial because they were treated as honoured guests of the Nazis and the Third Reich. Okay. Yeah, no, it took a turn there. Charles visited centres of military aviation, praised the Luftwaffe's, which is their uh, Air Force, uh, fighter and bomber designs, and asserted that, quote, Europe and the entire world is fortunate that a Nazi Germany lies at present between communist Russia and a demoralised France, end quote. He was very anti-Soviet Union, or very anti-Russia, uh, and at this stage, very pro-Third Reich. Right. What year is this? Oh, this is uh, the early to mid-1930s. Right. He travelled the globe throughout the 1930s and then returned to Germany in October 1938. Very late. And Hermann Göring himself, very high-ranking Nazi, decorated him with the service cross of the German eagle. According to Britannica, this led to considerable criticism because people are already... There's a lot of outcry against the Nazis, even though World War II hasn't started yet. Mm. But Lindbergh again, according to Britannica, got criticism but remained enormously popular with the American public. Apparently, he was considering moving to Germany just months after the outbreak of World War II, but instead moved to Paris and then back to the USA. Germany alone, Lindbergh argue, argued, could damn the Asiatic hordes and prevent the overrunning of Europe. In an essay for Reader's Digest in November 1935, Lindbergh cautioned against Quote, a war within our own family of nations, a, wa a war which will reduce the strength and destroy the treasures of the white race, end quote. But that's something Lindbergh said. Yeah, so in Reader's Digest. He was like, why are we fighting with Germany? We shouldn't be fighting against them. And he further pleaded, quote, let us not commit racial suicide by internal conflict, end quote. He was a bit obsessed in his later life with race and eugenics, on a basic level, selective breeding to keep bloodlines pure and have superior children. <laughs> See how part three suddenly gets real weird? Also, yeah. Three very different films. I know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Over time, support for Lindbergh disappeared both in the general public and in the military as he was criticising military leaders left, right and centre publicly. He was still in the military, but he was saying, why are we fighting with them? Why are you invading there? Yeah. What are you doing? And eventually he had a public spat with President Franklin Roosevelt and had to quit his Air Corps Reserve Commission. He went on to fly planes in Asia during the war, supposedly as a civilian, but they did let him bomb the enemy because he's a great pilot. God. Crazy. So he had a big public fight with the president. Who? Oh, the enemy of who was he bombing? Ah, oh, so he was in Asia, probably bombing Japan. Right. Because it sounds like he was sort of on the Axis's side. Oh, right. No, no. He was anti-Japan. Yeah. Complicated. But, yeah, he never acted against America, like, violently, but he did make some very controversial statements that made him less and less popular and less and less relevant over time. Charles and Anne had four more children, and following World War II, the family lived quietly in Connecticut and then in Hawaii. For his services to the government, he was appointed Brigadier General. Brigadier! In the Air Force... Matt, you do it. Brigadier. It's so much better in his deep it voice. Sounds so, it sounds like, break it down, but Brigadier. 
Brigadier. Brigadier. <laughs> that, that command was given to him by President Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1954. And he Seen can, a few presidents. I yeah, guess that's yeah. what happens in a life. And he's, and because of his fame, he's like he's known them all. Yeah. He continued as consultant to Pan American World Airways and to the U.S. Department of Defense. He died in Hawaii on August 26. <gasps> great day. 1974, age 72. Anne lived another 27 years and died in 2001, age 95. Whoa, go Anne. What, what date did she die in the pre or post 9-11 world? I'm afraid I don't have the date. Hmm. Okay, 26. so that's the end of part three. How about a little part four? Oh, my God, Dave. Postscript. You're killing me. I love this. Then two years after Anne's death, Charles Lindbergh was headline news all over again when it was discovered that he had secretly fathered seven children in Germany to three separate women. Beginning in 1957, when he was 55 years old, Lindbergh had engaged in lengthy sexual relationships with three women while remaining married to Anne. He fathered three children with hatmaker Bridget Hessheimer and had two children with her sister, Mariette. Okay. What did she make? <laughs> Marionettes. Ah. Yeah, come on, put two and two together. Is this him trying to keep the bloodline pure still? What's he doing now? Yeah, it's a big possibility that people have speculated. He also had a son and daughter with his European secretary, also in Germany. All seven children were born between 1958 and 1967. When the children were born, he carried on visiting his new family, but never told them his real name. They were told that their father was an American writer called Carew Kent, which is the best fake name. Carew Kent. I would have gone... Kent Carew. Mm, you can't good. can't get away with big lies like that anymore. No, Quick you Google. can't. Yeah. Oh, Kent Carew. Okay, great. I won't look into that any further. Won't go to the library or anything. <laughs> Try and see one of your books. Yeah, can you bring some books? Oh, they got lost on the plane. Mm. Mm. I guess you'd be like, they're only, pub- they're only published in English. Not available in Germany. Mm. Sorry. 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 Sorry, sorry son. Sorry. Oh, sorry. That's wild. And then just before he died, Lindbergh wrote to each of his mistresses, this is about 10 days before he died, sent them a letter each, asking them to keep his secret even after he died. They did this and they never told any of their children the truth. However, after reading a magazine article about Lindbergh in the mid-1980s, Bridget's daughter Astrid deduced the truth. She later discovered snapshots and more than 150 love letters from Lindbergh to her mother and DNA tests confirmed the truth. And then in the 2000s, after Anne had died, I guess out of respect for her, they came out and they wrote a book about it and it became worldwide public news. So what, she would have reached out and found her other siblings as well, like the yeah, other seven kids? some people are like your step-siblings but also your cousins. Yeah, that's fucked. Yeah, so you're growing up thinking those kids are your cousins. Yeah, but actually your Turns dad out is your their dad. siblings. Yeah. Isn't that absolute? And that that's is that's the end wild. of the report. That is it. It's like four crazy chapters of his life. And there it is. That's my longest report ever. Thank you. I'm sorry. It's so many ups and downs. You know, it's obviously it starts with like he's the most famous man on earth, and then you know he loses a child, and you feel so sorry for him, and then he's a Nazi, and then he comes out at the end, and he's like, I had seven secret kids. That's. First of all, too many kids. Too many secret kids. We know what was causing it, though. White pride. That was the cause this time. We finally have an answer. Dave, that is wild. What a wild, wild story. And there was like detective bit in the middle there where they're sending secret notes to each other. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. 
this is that's insane. I think I'd vaguely looked into the topic once before, like a quick Google. Because obviously it's frequently requested. We've yeah. got over ten people asking for it here. Yeah. I think I may have seen that before. So all I knew though was that it wasn't good for the baby. Right. I knew that. I was like, this isn't gonna be good. I we, didn't know. I didn't know. We've talked about the Mandela effect before. Yeah. Online there are a lot of people posting saying, I don't remember that they that they ever found the baby. I don't remember that a man was arrested for his kidnap. Right. Yeah, that was a, on a Patreon episode. We did the Mandela effect as a, as a as a topic. But yeah, some people are saying that. Hang on, I don't. Many people online were agreeing. Yeah, that's right. The Lindbergh baby. I also, thought that he was never found. It was a German was found guilty of killing his kid, and then he, he goes had, to Germany. Had such a close relationship with Germany straight Just, after, and had seven German children. I would have thought that would have Germany to me would have like that would have made me. Yeah, for someone like I just don't want to go to Germany. Which is which is illogical, but emotionally, of course you would. Yeah, of course you'd be like, I'm not going to that place. Obsessed with eugenics and race. Yeah, because he's obsessed with that kind of thing, and it's like, well, it turns out that people you think is the superior race killed your son. God, that's Mm. odd. All right. Well, uh, after your report, Dave, which was fantastic. uh, (laughs) Thank you so much. It is now time for. Everyone's favourite segment of the show, fact, quote, or question. Fact, quote, or question. Widget the World Watcher. Uh, This week's fact, quote, or question comes from Andreas. What what does an omelette do to a a U? Makes it sparkle. Okay. Uh, (laughs) If you could just put that, try again. Yeah, say it's sparkly. Andreas Muleo. Nice. Uh, the sparkle was on the first U. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Andreas writes a question this week. And this week's question is, I've got a question for you. Lisa, will you marry me? That might confuse you at first, as uh, neither one of you is named Lisa. This also isn't a Simpsons reference, although Millhouse may have uttered those words in some episode. This question isn't even directed at you, but the lovely person sitting next to me, who I've been together with for eight and a half years, and who rarely listens to podcasts, but knows that the Planet Broadcasting crew has a special place in my heart. I love this woman as much as Jess hates Bindi Irwin. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> Truth is, I just needed someone to read out this question and the following ramblings out loud to buy me some time while I fumble around with a ring box behind my back. Cheers, guys. <gasps> was that a proposal? I think so. Who was that from? Andreas, Andreas Umlaut. Well, could, no, I mean, this is if, if this is a, an, a moment here. Could you, with the German heritage, you should be able to say a word like that. Andreas Müller. Ooh, that did sound more accurate, probably. Andreas. I mean, they've stopped listening by this point. All the, I mean, let us know how it goes. Lisa, what did you say? This is crazy. This is wild. This is podcasting. <laughs> It's the power of podcasting. It's mate, I think. Wow, I'm feeling tingles, Andreas. I'm tingling. You guys are confused. That was funny. Because I read, I I read it before. I read the first two lines before. I'm like, <gasps> <laughs> whoa, wow. Do we have to reach out? Do you think in advance so Andreas knows to listen to this? Yeah, with I'll Lisa, let, I'll let him know. Yeah, thanks, Andreas, for supporting the show, and good luck, hopefully, with an engagement. And let us know if we should delete this section of the episode <laughs> due to something going not quite to plan. Like you accidentally throw the ring yeah, it in the toilet. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, 
in the oh. toilet grate. I yeah. got a great toilet. <laughs> wow. Well, that was definitely the most exciting edition of Fat Quota Question yet. Yep. Lisa, wow. will you marry me? That is a Simpsons thing, right? That's what I thought when he... Well, th- there's Ralph uh, definitely saying... I choose you. Choose you. Yeah, uh, I love different. Lisa Simpson. When I grow up, I'm going to marry her. No! <laughs> you can pinpoint the second his heart breaks in heart. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, well, that brings us... Yeah, do let us know how you go, Andreas. And then uh, that brings us to everyone's favourite segment of the show. It's the Patreon shout-out segment of the show. Yeah, That is right. If you support the show at patreon.com slash pod, you get rewards every single week and every single month, including two bonus episodes that no one else hears and a bunch of other stuff, including pre-sales for all our shows everywhere in the world. We'll put those on sale there first. And in exchange for being the lovely people you are on Patreon, we're going to shout-out to a few of you now. I thought of a game. Okay, great. Um, to keep it... Uh, light-hearted again because okay. part two onwards was fucked. Oh, so what section of his life? Part one, two, three, or four? Part we... one. Okay. And you know how his plane was called? The Spirit of St. Louis. Let's name their plane. Name the plane game. All right, can I kick it off? Uh, thanking from Cork in Ireland, Laura O'Day. Laura O'Day. Laura O'Day. The Lord of the Deads. Oh, because law is short for Laura. Yep. The Lord of the Dance. That's the name of the play. No, the law. Laura of the Dance? Laura of the Dance. I like it. Yeah. That is a good play. That's great. No, no, no. Laura O'Dance. Laura O'Dance. (laughs) Oh, dance girl. Yeah. Yeah. So you can take your pick really there, Laura, to be honest. Or maybe you've got a fleet of planes. Yeah. Or, Or you could put like a very long name down the side of that plane. Yeah. All of them. Yeah, bracket or bracket or. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for your support, Laura. Thank you, Laura. And I'd love to thank from uh, Kulak in New South Wales, Australia, Adam James, a man with two first names. Mm. Much and like two myself. first planes. <gasps> and what that first plane is called, the Aurora Kulata. Ooh. Oh, I like that. You look impressed with yourself. Are you okay? I, I, I just don't know where that came from. I'm going to call the second one uh, the flying cow. All right. That's good, oh, too. that's good. The Aurora Kulata and the flying cow. Which one are we going to take to work today, guys? They both sound like good pubs. They do. I'd drink at either of those mm. if I was drinking. A mm. couple of tinnies down at the Aurora Kulata. Too right. <laughs> too right, too right. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Adam James. Well, if you don't mind, I would like to thank someone by name now. And I'll do it. I would like to thank from Denver, Colorado, Ooh. home of the Denver airport. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. I would like to thank Michael Gilbert. Oh, okay. Um, so what the name of his plane, obviously parked at the Denver airport, is yes. of course. <gasps> oh, well, he, has he got one or two planes? Because one would be called probably. Uh, Why do they all have two now? Now I feel bad for Laura. Virgin Blucifer. Laura, Laura had a fleet. Oh, yeah. Virgin Blucifer is great. <laughs> is that Virgin Blue is just an Australian thing, right? Oh. The Virgin Domestic in Australia. Oh, it's not even. It used to be Virgin Blue. And also Gilbert is the brand of uh, rugby balls. So maybe um, the, what about the old scrum half? 
Nelson? Nelson. The Scrum Half Nelson. That's a good name. <laughs> yeah, good I like name. that. The blue, the Virgin Lucifer and the Scrum Half Nelson. God, good teamwork there, guys. Well, yeah. well done. like that a lot. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much to Michael Gilbert in Mickey, Denver, Colorado. Mickey G, I think his friends call him. <laughs> and I like to think of myself as a friend of Mickey G. I would like to thank another friend now from Australia, from Greenwood in an unknown state because it says here... <laughs> It's obviously a drop-down menu that you've forgotten to fill in, so it just says, from Greenwood in Select One, <laughs> it is Connor Schmidt. Connor oh. Schmidt. There's something about Schmidt that I love. It's just such a good it's name. It's a good name. Yeah. The the Falcon. Country. Man. Air. Man Air. <laughs> the Falcon Country Man Air. That sounds quite good. Manair is a cool Manair. concept. Manair. Yeah. The Falcon Country Manair. Yeah, the Falcon Country Manair. I like it. Connor, do you like that? Uh, select one. <laughs> I mean, yes or no, that. select one. Thank you, Connor. Schmidt. Thanks, Connor. Great to have the Schmidt on board. Schmidt. Do you reckon I can um, thank people too? Yeah. Oh, please. I'd it, like to do you have a name as good as Schmidt? No. Oh. Well, actually, pretty good. Okay. I would like to thank from West Moona in Tasmania. I love Tasmania. Kate Buzzercott. Oh, that is a great Ooh. name. That is a fantastic name. We've got to do something with buzzer, I think. Buzzer. So like a bee, the flying bee. Oh, I like that. <laughs> you probably don't the need to say flying. The flying bee. <laughs> like the flying V. Or what about, like, the beehive or something like that? Oh, yeah. Uh, The the hives. uh, uh, Swedish band. uh, uh, Black and white. The Swedish hive. The Swedish hive? Swedish hive. I like that. Swedish hive mind in the air. (laughs) Okay, yeah, see. I reckon, Kate, you should just call it the Swedish hive. Yeah, I reckon. That's confusing. I mean, you've got options. That's your call to make. Ultimately, let us know what you think, Buzzer. Thank you, Kate. I'd also like to thank from New York, New York. Oh, Frank Sinatra. It's a hell of a town. Cameron Wade. Wade. Unless you wade into a pond. So maybe the flying ducks. Yes. (laughs) Again, I've said a thing that already flies and put flying (laughs) in the front. What about just uh, old blue eyes? Old blue eyes. Frankie. It's a good name for a plane, I reckon. I don't, yeah, I don't take know about a, old, though. Who's getting in a plane that's called old something? Oh, old Blue Eyes. Let's take it down to San Francisco. The 2020 Blue Eyes. Yeah, yes. that's good. Big that, Blue. That gives you confidence. Yeah, 2020. Big Blue, I think, of the ocean. Are you landing in the ocean? Is hey, that happening? It could be. Oh, it's an, it's aqu- one of those, it's what, an aquaplane. Aquaplane. Seaplane. I'm, I'm aquaplaning. Isn't that when you're, like, you're, when you're driving, driving through along. water? Yeah. I'm aquaplaning. I'm yeah. aquaplaning here. <laughs> In New York City. Ah, oh, Cameron Wade, what an absolute pleasure to have you on board. Listening in the Big Apple. Yeah. Also a good name for a plane. Yeah, yeah, the Big Apple. Oh. Fly, <laughs> the Flying Apple. All Damn right. it. He's yeah, got two. Flying Apple. Did Kate Buzzercott have two? The bee and the hive. Put them together. Now, we've got to give Laura O'D another na- another one now. Wait, did we give her like seven? No, we gave her one and then said she's got a fleet. She'll be right. Yeah, uh, Laura O'D dance and Lord of the Dance. And also, she's from Cork, so like a bobbing, like a cork in the ocean was a famous quote by football commentator Dennis Committee. So um, maybe the golden tonsils air. I like it. I love it. (laughs) Thank you, Jess. Mm. Dave, a bit lukewarm. (laughs) I think I said a lukewarmer.
Just to clarify. And thanks to everyone that supports the show at patreon.com slash dogoonpod. Makes a big difference to our lives and hopefully you guys get a lot out of it as well with those bonus episodes and all that kind of stuff. One should have just dropped by the time you're hearing this. That's right. We're about to record one. And also, uh, when you're supporting the Do Go On Patreon, you're also supporting Primates Podcast, which is a podcast all about primates and popular culture. It's very silly, but very fun. It's just a comedy show, basically. The apes and the monkeys are very important, but also not at all important. And also, Dave Warnicky's show, Book Cheat, which goes through a classic novel every fortnight. And it and he reads the book, so you don't have to. And it's a whole lot of fun. Jess and I were on a recent episode, probably the most recent episode, where we talked about A Christmas Carol. That is right. I've got a new episode coming out January 1st. Start the new year the right way and, uh, by this- listening to a show about a book. Tomorrow's episode of uh, Primates features Jessica Perkins. Does it? And we talk about Mowgli. Oh, that one. Yeah, that's a good one. Good fun time. So check those out on your podcast app or stream them online for free. Good time. And you want to get in contact with us, we are on all the social medias all the time. We never stop. At Do Go On Pod for everything. And uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We're also dogoonpod at gmail.com. And if you ever want to buy a ticket to any of our live shows or support the Patreon or buy some merchandise... Definitely do that. That also is a great way to support the show whilst getting yourself some new threads. Go to dogoonpod.com. And one last thing, if you can give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever, that would be really appreciated. Last time we asked for you to put uh, Soy Boy (laughs) into the um, review, and a good half dozen of you did that, and that really brought joy to my heart. (laughs) A five-star review that also calls us Soy Boys. It brought soy to your heart. Yeah. Come on. So much soy. Calcium rich soy. Mm. Calcium enriched. I don't think it naturally is enriched. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is the end of the show for another week and another year. Thank you so much for sticking with us through the 2018. And now it's time to go into the 2019 next week. Fresh. We will not stop. And I guess, yeah, we'll see you next year. Jess, see you next year, mate. See you next year. Dave, see you next year. Thanks, Dad. And until next week, and until next year, I will say goodbye. Laters. Bye. To me, that's Broden more than Dad. Yeah, it's Broden. Sorry, to me, it's my dad. Because remember, I think I've said it before, he says it every year. Does he really? Bye. Every year. Bye. Bye, son. <laughs> this podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want. It's up to you. 